Africa Business of Sport podcast with myself, Adam Spiel, and my ever-present co-host, Jabu Mtua. Today, we are speaking with a seasoned individual with decades' worth of experience in the Middle East, both in sports and other aspects of business and life. Jabu, who do we have for our audience today? Adam, I think it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say this is definitely one of the leading journalists of our time. This is an award-winning journalist and scholar who has decades-long demonstrated passion for producing in-depth, incisive analysis and research. In particular, his focus has been on geopolitics, which has intersected with sports in recent years, and also having journalists Having journalism experience within the Middle East, within North America, he has been a senior correspondent for papers such as the Wall Street Journal. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the S. Raja Ratnam School of International Studies. He's also a doctor of philosophy in international relations and affairs. And most importantly, or at least for me, for being a big fan of his, he is the author of The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, which is an exceptional newsletter. James Dorsey, welcome on the Africa Business of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you. And thank you for that very kind and, I would say, over-generous introduction. Not at all, James. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin with the turbulent world of Middle East soccer. I think this has become an even more prevalent topic just because of how important the Middle East region has been in pushing forward, and I would say, and Adam, I know you would agree with this, innovating in the sports industry. Football in the Middle East, James, what would your assessment be of its evolution and its history as an instrument for politics? Let me, before I answer your question, uh, just briefly say, I don't totally disagree with you. There has been some degree of innovation, although I think it's limited. And particularly the innovation that we've seen uh, may be twofold. One is on the part of the United Arab Emirates in the sense that they've changed uh, the business model. Or they, or maybe just, uh, just put it differently, they've adopted a different business model. Uh, what they have done with the acquisition and since the acquisition in 2008 of Manchester City is build a global franchise. So you have a holding company that owns teams, clubs on multiple continents, and they've been able to um, to leverage that, if you wish, in terms of uh, deepening, expanding their relations, for example, with China, where they've brought China as a minority shareholder, one or two or three, minority shareholders into the holding company. And that we haven't seen as a business model in uh, football before. So I think that's an innovation. Um, the Gada World Cup, of course, was a World Cup for the first time in the Middle East uh, and at the intersection of continents. And so for the first time, in some ways, you had a a different or an expanded geography, or demography, sorry, in terms of numbers uh, of Africans, of Asians attending the World Cup that you've seen in the past. But 
those are limited. I mean, they're important innovations, but they're limited in innovations, if you wish. Uh, I don't think they affect the sport as such. Coming back to your question, um, football, like all sports, but particularly football, is by definition political, whether one likes that or not, or whether one wants to admit that as the uh, International Football Federation uh, associations, including FIFA, refuse to do. What makes the Middle East unique is that uh, since the introduction of the sport um, by the English and to a lesser degree by the French, uh, football has been a major uh, factor, if you wish, in the development of the region as such. And it's been consistent throughout more than now, more than a century, which makes the Middle East different from other parts of the world where football has played a major political role at given moments in history, but not consistently all the time. So football was a, uh, a venue for resistance against colonialism. It was a venue for uh, national liberation. It was a venue for nation forming and nation building and regime forming and regime survival. And most recently, it's been on the one hand a um, the venue of protest, as we saw in the 2011 popular Arab revolts, and it's also what we're seeing most recently, at least uh, at a at a uh, enhanced scale. It's a uh, major player in terms of nation branding, in terms of economic diversification. Uh, in terms of uh, Saudi Arabia, in this case, wanting to be top dog in the region and one of the top dogs globally. So so football's been extremely important um, politically, economically, socially, however you want to define it, uh, in the region. So it's no secret that Saudi Arabia is really leading the race when it comes to its sports ambitions and developments within the MENA region. We're seeing what the Saudis are doing and we're very impressed. I mean, looking at PIF's investments and acquisition into Newcastle United, looking at what they're doing with the Saudi Pro League, where they've been able to attract global superstars like Ronaldo. It's evident that they're trying to reach that global status when it comes to sports. But what are the strategic implications that were put in place initially to spare Saudi Arabia to make all of these investments? Because I'm asking from a point of view where we just watched the FIFA Men's World Cup in Qatar last year. In one's mind, the Qataris should be leading the race because, of course, you have just hosted the World Cup, right? But now, Saudi is on a huge counterattack and it looks as if they're leading the Qataris. What were those strategic factors that were considered and where will it get to in five years? We like to do things in five years, 10 years. And of course, people are saying that China started this and didn't end well. But what's the potential for Saudi Arabia in the next five years? I think there's several things here. First of all, to be fair to the Saudis, they've been a reasonably successful, uh, certainly when it comes to football, 
they've been, uh, uh, and primarily football, uh, they've been a successful uh, team, and they've had they have a history of success. They've uh, uh, reached World Cup finals on several occasions. They took everybody by surprise in the Gata World Cup by beating the Argentinians. Uh, they've done very well, and their clubs have done very well in regional Asian tournaments. So they have a history. And that history, and we'll come back to the comparison with China in a moment, that history is important in the comparison with China. What we've seen recently, okay, take the money away. Saudi Arabia wouldn't be where it is. It's at this point not achieved its bought. And it has to turn those acquisitions into achievements and into performance. And that's going to take a lot more than just money. That's going to take building up from the grassroots. Uh, and that's going to take a lot of time. Now, as said, they have performed well. Uh, it was money also that uh, uh, got them the PGA Live Golf merger. It wasn't Saudi golfers. I don't think that you could name a Saudi golfer. Uh, so, so I think you, you, you know, we've got to be realistic about what this is. Now, the reasons I think they have a far greater chance of success than the Chinese do is one, as I mentioned, performance. The Chinese have never been to a, to a uh, World Cup final. They haven't done well, at least when it comes to football. In, uh, in regional tournaments. The second difference with China is that the Saudi initiative is part of a larger economic diversification plan. Um, economic diversification plan in terms of this um, obviously creates a sport, helps create a sports industry. Uh, and keep one thing in mind, uh, the other players in this, Qatar and the UAE, have simply different strategies. And to some degree, sure, the World Cup, Cup was, was major, and, and, but to some degree, those, those strategies are less splashy. But I wouldn't write them off. Uh, um, but coming back to China, so it's part of a, 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 a much, it's embedded in a much larger project that has economic aspects, Build a sports industry, uh, fuel tourism, fuel the entertainment industry. Um, it has public policy implications. In this case, particularly public health, engaging uh, Saudis in some form of physical activity, which they need to do. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a country with some of the highest rates of obesity and of diabetes, and it has social political implications. It's bred, in, it's, it's bred in circus for the people. With other words, uh, give them success in something they feel very passionate about, and the likelihood is that you're going to have, uh, or the hope is that you're going to have less pushback uh, in terms of 
certain policies that groups may be opposed to. Just to give you an indication of the delicacy that plays here, if you go back several years, um, Saudi Arabia asked European consultants to help them draft their first uh, national sports plan. That sports plan was focused on individual sports and was supposed to downplay the importance of team sports for the very reason that team sports are a political risk. That's pretty fascinating. I think what that also shows, James, is you know even with this influx of all these huge corporates, not only in sport, uh, but particularly in sports, you can see it now where you're having clubs engaging even more with the Middle Eastern re- uh, fan bases, but also corporates who are coming in and setting up headquarters in Saudi Arabia or Dubai or other countries within the Middle East, Qatar and Doha, which is a really important city now within the MENA region. Is this just something that is happening across an entire uh, sports industry, or not only in the sports, but in other industries too? Well, I, I think it's there's something else that's happening, which is for now, you know, more, a significant period of time, we're talking about decades, uh, corporations operating in the region and the region being defined as far broader than the Middle East itself, but into Africa and into Asia, would set up shop primarily in Dubai, far less so uh, if the, uh, than elsewhere. I mean, if a sense, if you wanted to go back historically, the country that was really positioned to become a hub uh, in the wake of the Lebanese civil war that ended in 1975 was Bahrain. Bahrain was at the time a hub in the Gulf, and, or, and certainly, for example, uh, the airline hub. It was a financial center, and it wasted that opportunity and essentially, Dubai grabbed that opportunity. What you're seeing with the move to, towards uh, to, to to Saudi Arabia is not the move voluntarily to the next hub. Corporations have no choice. The Saudis have given them, if they want to work with the government, till 2024 to establish their regional headquarters in. Saudi Arabia, and it's part of Saudi Arabia's competition with the first starters in the game in the Gulf. So that's what you're seeing, rather than this organic process, if you wish. James, on 22nd September 2023, The Guardian recorded that Mohammed bin Salman says he will continue doing sports washing for Saudi Arabia. And sports washing has become a buzzword that has become even more prevalent since December of last year. And now people are saying that everything that Saudi is doing is just for sports washing. And even bin Salman himself said that he doesn't care about the accusations of sports washing against his country. What are your thoughts on such a mentality and... How come other regions benefit from this mentality? 
Now, I don't use the word. First of all, the word sports washing isn't a term that evolved um, you know, before that, when, when the discussion really started. And that started in 2008 with the acquisition of uh, Manchester City by the UAE. Uh, the term used was um, reputation laundry. And in some ways, to me, as a term, reputations laundering is a more accurate term for what the what people who use the term are trying to describe than sports washing. But the reason that I that I don't use the term either reputation laundering or sports washing is not because I I mean let's be clear about it. Uh, countries like Saudi Arabia are among the worst abusers of human rights on the globe. And it's a human rights situation that is not improving. It's getting worse. And it's, um, uh, and more importantly, and that's what Mohammed bin Salman was saying, I couldn't care less. And he, I think he, he has a point there in that the term sports washing is based on two false assumptions. The assumption that countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, who do abuse human rights, care about their reputations in that regard. What bin Salman was saying, I couldn't care less. But it also makes a second assumption that a broad swath of people, a, major, a majority of people almost, care about human rights. And the fact is, it's minorities that care about human rights. It's sad. The majority should care, but they don't care. Look at the reception that fans have given to the Saudi acquisition of Newcastle United or to the UAE acquisition of um, uh, Manchester City or Gata's acquisition of Paris Saint-Germain, the majority of fans embraced it because all they cared about was the money that was going to come into the club and the opportunities that were going to open for the club. And if that was over the back of people who uh, innocently spent years in prison in Saudi Arabia, so be it as far as those fans were concerned. So... That's why I think there's there, and the, and then the third reason, of course, is what I was what we were talking about before. Uh, the engagement in sports has to do with a lot more than uh, simply reputation. Now, to be clear, two things: one, reputation is important, and what. Uh, the hosting of major events does for a country is it uh, uh, shines a spotlight on it. It demonstrates a country's ability to organize a event of that magnitude and of that complexity. Uh, and it uh, and that helps build a reputation that is useful for the, for example, for the attraction of foreign investors. Um, so there is a reputational aspect to it, but it goes far and far beyond um, what sports, 
people use the term sports washing talk about. I think there's also a much more fundamental issue here, which goes far beyond the middle, is universal. And um, that is clear and apparent in uh, the whole debate that took place about the Qatar World Cup in the uh, walk-up to the World Cup. With other words, there was pressure, significant pressure, on Qatar with regard to various aspects of, of human rights, if you wish. Now, if you look at the strategy of the Qataris, initially, uh, their response was put their head in the sand. Yeah, a little bit like an ostrich and hope that when they pull their head out of the sand, they will all have blown over and there won't be an issue. And so, and they disregarded people who said to them, uh, you do that, by the time you pull your head out of the sand, you will have lost the high ground and you'll be on the defensive, which is exactly what the Gutteris did and exactly where they were. But to be fair, they then put the, the horse in front of the cart and rather than rejecting their critics, they actually engaged with their critics. Now, that engagement, to some degree, broke down over a period of time, but nonetheless, they engaged. And they engaged with them, first and foremost, on the issue of workers' rights. And at the end of the day, uh, the working and living conditions and terms of labor in Qatar was was significantly enhanced. Not a, not maybe not ideal. Uh, there was more that could have been done in quicker could, that could have been done quicker. But in the in, you know in and and implementation is a problem, but that's a problem in Qatar in general. Uh, there was improvement. Now the reason there was improvement was that Qatar had an interest in it. And that interest went beyond, uh, it, it was a reputational interest, but it went beyond the World Cup. Because Qatar is the only Gulf state that prides itself on defending rights. Whether it does so or not is a different question. But the language that Qatar uses when it comes to rights uh, women's rights, freedom of, press, freedom of the press, whatever it may be, is a very different language that is employed by countries like the like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So they, in contrast to other Gulf states, had a had a rep, felt and recognized that they had a reputational interest on a rights issue, which other states do not recognize. But if you, and, and the second thing I think was, which was important here was that the majority of Gutteries was not intrinsically and deeply opposed to improvement of workers' rights. Various interest groups had various concerns with regard to uh, ch changing the, the, uh, the labor regime structure. But if those concerns were addressed, they were perfectly happy with it. Now, if you contrast the whole discussion and debate over uh, labor rights with the debate over LGBTQ rights, that was a very different situation. 
because there a, a majority of gutteries, so the guttery population, I'm not talking about the non-guttery population, which is a majority in the country, but nonetheless, uh, are deeply opposed, rightly or wrongly, to LGBTQ rights. And so what you saw was that the, the, uh, the gutter, the, the authorities, in effect, adopted the most far-reaching uh, approach to this that they could, which was the equivalent of um, uh, uh, Bill Clinton's don't, uh, don't Ask, Don't Tell. You know, so as long as people wouldn't flout their, their preferences on the street, but then you're talking about a society in which uh, um, uh, uh, intimate exchanges between uh, 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 among a, a heterogenic couple are also frowned upon. The gallery authorities weren't weren't going to make an issue of it. So um, you know, so so at the bottom line, that's you know uh, probably a long winded answer to your question on sports washing. What we're seeing right now, double mentioned it a bit, is a lot of cooperation between Afro-Arab initiatives in sports. We've seen the Saudi Arabia Football Federation sign an MOU with CAF, and we've seen the Arab Golf Cup Football Federation recently sign an MOU with CAF as well. What are the implications for the growth of football within the MENA region and in Africa, given such initiatives and a sign of an MOU that seeks to develop sports genuinely? Look, I, I, I mean, I don't know the details of the of the various agreements. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but from my vantage point, looking at it, it's buying influence, it's buying goodwill. That's primarily what it is. Uh, <clears throat> let's face it: the Saudi Sports Initiative is not focused on Africa. It's focused on the on, on Europe. That's what it's focused on. It's not focused on the United States. I mean, I think it's important from the Saudi point of view, the, the fallout and the effect of it in, in, the, in the United States, but it's not focused on the rest of the world. So, I mean, now, that doesn't mean that over time, these agreements with African associations may lead to something more substantial and more productive. But as a matter of principle, at this point, I think it's a question of buying in influence. I, look, if you go back to um, the whole debate about the integrity of the Qatar, uh, uh, Qatar's, the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar, um, you know, a lot of, and, and, and there's no question in my mind that um, there was wrongdoing involved. Now, to be fair to the Qataris, there were, you know, they're not the, that was the way business was done in FIFA. The gutteries just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if you wish, you could even give the gutteries credit for not by design but by default, having led, having initiated a, a situation in which reforms in FIFA had to be made because it was no longer a tolerable situation. But the point here is, you know, the gutteries put money into Africa. 
They were buying votes. As simple as that. I don't think the Saudis are buying votes or the Arabs are buying votes at the moment. They're buying goodwill. It's an investment in a relationship that will, in the future, work work in their benefit, they hope. But again, I mean, these things can evolve and can become something really substantial. But I don't think we've seen that yet. And there we have it, folks. Another fascinating conversation on the Africa Business Sport Podcast, but a compelling exchange with award-winning journalist, and I also forgot to mention, two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee, James Dorsey. James, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, shedding light on all the developments that are happening within football in the Middle East and where it's going in the future, the sports diplomatic aspects of it and how it's being used for different purposes, whether that be for a government or for social causes. It's a fascinating region, and this was a fascinating conversation to Adam. This was truly a masterclass from James about Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, and how they view sport. 100%. And what I love is that he's brought his decade worth of experience to the conversation, and it was so easy, so free-flowing. I don't know if you are a lecturer, but if you aren't, given the fact that you're a professor, you do a really good damn job when it comes to explaining so avidly and, and really creating insights in the mind of anyone listening. I would love to be in your class and have exchanges with you on a regular. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's really very kind of you. I definitely would like to stay in touch and would like to continue the conversation. It was really a pleasure.